Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Kathleen Utech, Managing Partner at Core Innovation Capital, a venture capital firm with offices in LA and San Francisco, investing in high growth fintech companies that can unlock upward mobility for everyday Americans. Kat holds a bachelor's degree from Babson College and an MBA from our very own Wharton School. We talked about Kat's journey from family upbringing, schooling, all the way to how she ended up in VC, why she continues to be excited about fintech even after investing in the sector for over a decade, what's changed in the industry over the past few years, their investment and valuation approach, and how they work with portfolio companies to prepare them from seed to Series A and beyond, and her vision for course future, along with a whole lot more. And now join me in a great and fun conversation with Kat Utek. Well, Kat, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. And I should say to you, welcome back home, because we have today a, an alum joining us, which makes it extra special. Can we maybe get started by hearing a bit about your background and the road that led you to your current role? Yeah, definitely. So thanks so much for having me and glad to be back. Wish we were doing this on campus, but great to be doing it remotely. And so every VC, I think, has a different story of how they end up where they did. And, and, you know, we always ask entrepreneurs uh, when they come in to start and we always say, hey, tell us your background and and start from the beginning. Start from where did you grow up, brothers, sisters, parents, things that we can't read in on LinkedIn. So what ended up getting me here, I was born and raised outside of New York City, grew up in a family business. My dad had car dealerships. So actually, probably one of the few VCs that thought they were going to be a car dealer growing up and actually spent some summers as a car salesman. So businessman as a father and a, a wonderful mother that loved doing yoga well before yoga was cool and very artistic and creative and writing poems. Um, so really interesting household to be in with, with a business-minded person and a very creative artist-type person. And then I had an older brother, which was great, was two grades above me. I think it was an awesome combination. And so we had a ton of fun. And then went to do my undergrad at Babson, where they do a lot of family business stuff and was going to come out of school work somewhere for a couple of years, and like I said, go run car dealerships. And it turned out that my career after undergrad happened to be in financial services, operations, and investing. So I started my career uh, first at GE Capital, uh, rotating uh, throughout different business units in commercial finance. And then you know, from there, I realized that I really love doing and investing and doing deals. And I didn't really want to go and, and work in a retail shop. And it wasn't as intellectually intriguing as doing a lot of different investments. And so from there, I went to a middle market uh, investment bank briefly. They made an angel investment in an online offline commerce company. I grew that company, sold it to a private equity firm, and then have been doing venture ever since. I did go to Wharton for a couple of years before I started 
working on Core Fund One. Had a lot of great experience there. I got to meet a lot of great people. Actually made an angel investment through one of my classmates. So that was really fun. And now we're here today. I'm three funds into Core and happy to go and delve more into that. But that was the background of how I got here. Uh, fascinating. It's always nice to hear people's backgrounds and kind of helps you understand their motivations, right? Do you think if it wasn't for Wharton, you'd be doing something else and maybe not VC? No, I think everything that, that I was doing in pretty much since I was young, I was always very entrepreneurial and I was investing in angel investing before Wharton. So I think, you know, when I was at Wharton, one of the reasons I went is I figured I'd just angel invest in my classmates, get to know more people. Wasn't sure if I'd actually work in an institutional shop, but was able to actually through Wharton had a friend who introduced me to my partner, Arian. And I met him right when he was closing the first fund. So maybe it wouldn't have been at core. Maybe it wouldn't have run into Ariane. And so that Warren connection was pretty important. But I'm pretty much unemployable, Miguel. So I can either run a fund or run a company. And uh, that's about it. Got it. Great. Well, I mean, this is a fintech podcast after all, right? So (laughs) why fintech, right? Has it always been part of your thesis and your interests? So I think a lot of it was just really luck. When I went to the financial management program, I, I was unfortunately selected into doing commercial finance. And so that's when I started getting my first taste into financial services and capital markets and really enjoyed my time there. And I think when we were starting core and starting on the first fund, we saw a tremendous opportunity in financial services. And really the genesis of core came from uh, my partner, Ariane, uh, he had read a book about Mohammed Yunus and the Grameen Bank and was really obsessed with um, microfinance, um, but he didn't want to be an immigrant anywhere else. He's actually already an immigrant here to the U.S. He didn't want to move to Bangladesh. And so he was looking in the U.S. and looking for what he thought was the best solution to helping the un- and underbanked in America. And he came across something called ShoreBank which at the time was the largest community development financial institution, and realized that even though there were all these smart people there um, and they operated for 40 years, it still only touched half percent of the population. So before that, he'd been in startups, realized it really didn't scale. And he was kind of like, how can we build something that scales better? And how can we have financial services scale better for low and moderate income people? And so that was one of the genesis of the ideas. And so when we were speaking, we looked and we continue to see a lot of problems in the U.S. with income inequality. So it was a problem that we, one, we care deeply about and we are very mission-driven. And two, we thought it was a big problem to solve and that if you could actually solve parts of it, you could end up making a lot of money. And our whole investment philosophy is mercenary returns through missionary investments in financial services and insurance technology. You know, flash forward a decade, financial services has taken off. So yes, it was part of our background for a while, but especially back in 2011, we really saw a great opportunity to help those low and moderate income and on and underbanked. And we thought FinTech was the best solution to do so. Kudos to you, because a decade ago, not every fund was looking at FinTech. So <laughs> I'm sure it's worked out just by looking at your portfolio. But uh, the market has also evolved, right? The market has changed a lot. Take us through some of that evolution. I mean, you've had a front row seat at this fintech revolution, this wave of the last 10 years. I'm sure you have some reflections. 
Yeah, yeah. It's been a wild ride. I can't believe it's been a decade. But time flies. Actually, they always say the days are long and the years are short. And that's how I feel. And it's really, really been fun to watch the evolution. So back in 2011, there were only a handful of fintech venture funds. And then there were some corporate, you know, CBCs. And then now, you know, flash forward to today and you have, I can name dozens of fintech funds and I can name, you know, like a hundred partners that are in big, large omni-stage funds and that focus just on fintech. And so the amount of investors has grown. The number of investments have grown. You know, back in the day in 2011, we saw every company in our space and there were 150 new deals. And then again, you go to 2020 and we'll see a thousand new companies this year that are in our space and in our stage. And so you just see a huge expansion. And then the valuations have been just you know, insane. So again, back in 2011, we were leading Series A's with $3 million checks and it was like 20 posts. So you'd have double digit ownership. And now, I mean, $3 million is barely even a seed round. So we've, we've watched a huge evolution. I'll say as we watch a shift, we're more excited than ever. We think we're still I'm really just at the tip of the iceberg and there's so much more to do. And we're seeing better and better people come because again, you go back a decade and there were only so many fintechs, right? You had PayPal coming, Plaid just started, Stripe was just starting. Now, again, you're a decade later. And so you're spawning off all these great mafias. So there's the PayPal mafia, there's the Stripe mafia, there'll be the Square mafia. You know, now there's going to be the Plaid mafia and I'm sure there'll be Credit Karma one. And so you're having all this wonderful talent come. And so that's been really important for the ecosystem. So before there was only so much talent to even like, come out to start companies. And now you just have a plethora of talent. And so that's really amazing. And so you've also been able to do so many things with financial services, just with the invention of the iPhone, which barely existed when we were doing this. So, you know, really excited about the market more than we have ever been. And we've just had to like, you know, we've evolved with the time. So now we'll lead series A's, but we'll also lead seed rounds. Uh, you know, previously, you wouldn't lead a seed round because by the time you did the Series A, they were only a little bit more expensive and you'd have that much more information. Now, when you're watching seed and Series A and Series B, sometimes three rounds being raised in sub one year, you're not going to have much more information. And so we've just been going earlier. Fortunately, we know the people, we know the spaces. And so you'll see us go earlier and earlier. And so we always say most of our initial money now is in the seed or Series A because the lexicon has changed too. What's really a seed round? What's really a series A round? But we've been trying to evolve with the times and are just really excited to see how much financial services has grown in the last decade. Yeah. So on one end, talent has gotten better, right? But on the other end, you're seeing seven times more deals than you were before, you know, from mm-hmm. 150 to 1,000. On a percentage basis, do you feel that the companies that you would consider investing remain the same percentage or is there a higher quality of companies out there on a percentage basis? Yeah, I think there's actually a higher quality of companies. We've been fortunate that our fund sizes have evolved too. And so that keeps up with the amount of deals and we're doing more deals than we ever had. So yeah, we're doing more deals. We're seeing more deals. We're doing more deals. Now, are we keeping up or we're not 10xing the amount of deals that we used to do? We're not, but I do think the quality overall is a lot better than it ever has been. And you're even seeing it in the exits, right? Like again, uh, back in the day, 
you, there were barely ever any exits over a billion dollars. So when you were underwriting, you had to write underwrite to the median exit, which was an M&A at like $180 million. There were very few, again, besides the big incumbents, but there were very few early IPOs and financial services. You didn't see these huge exits like you've just seen recently with Plaid and with Credit Karma, even with Finicity. Like you're seeing a bunch of billion dollar exits. You haven't seen rounds done like a Robin Hood and Ripple and Chime where they're over $10 billion. Like none of that had existed. And I wish I could tell you, oh, we saw it coming. We thought it was going to get this big. I mean, we're even watching and every day being pleasantly surprised of like how much this market has grown and how quickly it's grown. So I do think while you're seeing more deals and the quality is good, I still feel like it's not like too many deals. I feel like there's still way more deals that can be into this market. And I think there's way more great teams that are going to build. And I think there's a lot of people now that are sitting in these thousand companies that are learning a lot and they're going to spin off and do their own startups. And I think there's a lot of people ready to acquire these financial services. And I also think the financial markets are ready for them so they can actually go public, which just didn't exist before. And a great example is back in 2011, when we were raising money, half the pitch deck was just trying to explain why financial services was a market. And some people that passed in our first fund, they were really like, we don't know. It's so niche. Like, do you think there's going to be enough deal to do? Is there going to be enough like money and exits? Like, is this like actually a thing? And so it's nice now where instead of having explained financial services is a market, people sometimes are like, oh my gosh, there's all these like niches in financial services. Are you guys like, don't you need more people? Can you cover it all? It seems so broad. So it's been interesting to see that shift of people thinking it was too narrow and now wondering if it's just like too broad of a market. Oh yeah, now now you need category funds, right? To look at specific yeah. verticals. <laughs> yeah, I so, don't know. You see all those people doing blockchain funds, you, you never know. <laughs> yeah, well, so you invest in a lot of companies at the seed stage, but that's only, I guess, with the expectation that you'll be able to support them later on. How do you work with your portfolio companies to prepare them from seed to series A and beyond? Yeah, that's a great question. So we'll still lead Series A's too. So whether it's pre-seed, seed, Series A, we'll, we'll write initial checks in all three of those stages. And it's so funny to even say a pre-seed round. I'm like, what is a pre-seed? It's like a nano. I don't know what you call it. But you know, we've in over this last decade, we've watched our companies fortunately grow. You know, one being worth ten billion dollars, one going public, a lot of solid exits, and so it's always amazing to watch that you start with two people pretty much working out of their apartments. And then watch them own, you know, a half a block on Market Street. And so it's great to watch that growth and the evolution as they grow. You really have to prepare from the very beginning the teams to really just have a great culture and build a good team, right? Everything we're investing in is highly regulated. So having a culture that really appreciates um, just good governance and paying attention to regulations. Like I say all the time. You know, this is not the taxi lobby or the hotel lobby. We can't break financial regulations and think that we'll be able to go down the court or appeal like six months from now. Like the government will shut you down. The SEC will shut you down. They don't screw around. So I'm um, very early on making sure that we are being compliant with financial services regulations, right? You are dealing with people's 
money and their livelihood in a lot of our companies. So that's really important to build. And I think if you want a really great company, you're going to have to build that in from scratch, which you don't see, I think, in a lot of other sectors. And then again, just building out a team, what type of culture doesn't want to be helping with hiring. One of the things we do is we have an internal database we call PeopleFlow, and we make dozens of matches between our portfolio companies, the companies we're tracking, and then people that we know are actively looking or imminently poachable. It's very important for us to build that talent and put great talent on these teams. I think that will set people up for success a lot. And so we've been good at helping people hire, helping people get the right commercial contracts in place, right? For the lender, making sure they have the right type of debt capital that can grow with them. And then when they grow past a certain point, helping them go, okay, that was your first $10 million of debt. Here's a great provider for your next like 10 to 50. And here's a great provider after 50. So depending on what sector it is, right? Helping them with getting revenue contracts for us. Again, we rather not dilute ourselves. We rather not have the entrepreneurs and the teams diluted. So the more revenue we can get in, the better. So preparing people with their first customers. We're in a lot of um, companies that modernize financial services and insurance infrastructure. So introducing them either on the startup side, because we see so many financial services companies that they can partner with, or you know, on the incumbent side, we're friends with a lot of people in the banks and other financial institutions. So really setting up the first customers, and then also putting you know policies in place. So if maybe you are starting with a startup because you're not ready to grow yet to a big bank, you really putting infrastructure. So like by the Series A or the Series B, you can be ready for those bigger customers. So like when I think about growing from the C to Series A to Series B, it really is helping with the regulatory structure, helping build the teams, helping with commercial contracts. Those are probably the main things that we do to help the companies grow as quickly as possible, but like in a responsible way. Because again, this is financial services and you really can't screw around with regulations. Right, absolutely. The moment you lose a dollar or a cent for your clients, you lose all trust. What are some of those perhaps red flags that when you're talking to an entrepreneur at the early stage, that you know you, you see some things and make you think twice about it? Yeah. Well, one, because we've been doing this for a while, we're really good at going through decks. And normally within 30 seconds, I can say, okay, I like this business. I like this market. I like this person's background for this or not. So that's really easy. And there's certain markets that we love more than others. And you know, like most investors, we only have so much bandwidth. So sometimes we look at something and go, oh, this really isn't that interesting. And then you'll click on a founder's background and go, oh, you know what? It's probably not the best fit for us. And then that'll be easy to pass. You know, when you talk about like red flag, so it's, I mean, we like the business, we like the founders. I mean, if there's any ethical issues, we won't do it. I think the thing that surprises me still, how often someone will be like, oh, XYZ investor is going to invest. We don't really care who else is investing or not. We deals, whether no one wants to do it or everyone wants to do it. But two, a lot of these people have been my friends for a long time. So I'll just ping them and go, hey, you know, Angela, are you investing in XYZ? And, and you know, if the response is no, and someone has blatantly lied to me, um, that's a problem. And then we won't work with them again. And that's probably the most frequent, really bad thing that happens where you might be excited about something. And then you're like, well, why did they just lie about that? I think it's a very fine line, right? Because when you're an entrepreneur, there is a bunch of, you have to have some smoke and mirrors because 
you're trying to kind of fake it to make it, but to a point, right? You can only stretch to a point. And whenever it comes to lying about customers or numbers or who's investing or anything, and like blatantly lying, like that's a red flag and we won't touch it. You've mentioned to me in the past that you look for investment opportunities for stuff that actually matters, right? And then I think this Mm -hmm. says a lot about the companies that you look for. Can you expand on this concept? Yeah, definitely. And I encourage anyone that's listening, if you're building something or contemplating building something, really do something that's going to matter to this world. Uh, We're all really smart. I know a lot of us, especially if you've gone to or at Wharton, have worked really, really hard. So we're very fortunate to be in the situation that we are. So doing something that actually gives back and helps society, I think is super important. And I think we should be working on really big issues. And so I think there's lots of issues that you could be working on. So if you look at where the big problems are in society, I think healthcare and healthcare costs and the lack of access to healthcare is important or to fix that is important. Financial inclusion is important. Climate change is important. So there's all these areas that I think you look and you're like, there are really big problems in the world. Like, how can we really make the world a better place? I think that's where that we're focused on. So, like, I talked to a great company yesterday. The woman was wonderful, loved her background, loved her traction, but she's serving a very upmarket population. She's serving the top 5% of the US. And honestly, like, while that can be a great business, like, that's not to me meaningful of where I want to be spending my time. So, I said, you're too upmarket for us, and I'll make interest to other people that, that want to do these upmarket things. So, for us, it's really taking everyday Americans. And we really love companies focused on low and moderate income people. And how can we improve their lives? How can we put more money in their pockets? And so when we think about it as increasing a household or a small, medium-sized business's GDP, how can you get more money in that household? And if you think about the biggest costs, things like healthcare, housing, transportation, education, you invest at the intersection of those and payments, finance, and insurance to keep the cost down and get more money in a household. So for us, that really matters. And people are watching. I mean, just look at the last decade. You can clearly see that there's a lot of Americans that are struggling. I think you saw it with a lot of the civil unrest that's happened over the last several months. I think COVID had made people realize how fragile and financially fragile they may be. And there's a lot of connections between people that are financially healthy and physically healthy. And if you look just at the numbers, Income is more volatile than ever, probably 2x, and a lot has to do with them, you know, not just having access to regular jobs. Americans are worried more about stability than like upward mobility for pretty much the first time in history. So uh, there's about 77% of Americans just want to be stable. And so we're working on really fixing that economy. And we see it as a massive opportunity because it's such a large swath of the country. I like that, and particularly because one of the main pillars, or in some cases, the whole point of fintech is democratizing access to services that were previously only available to the upper echelon, right? And this is very relevant in the US, but is even more relevant around the world. You haven't made too many investments outside of the US, right? You're mostly focused in America? Yeah, we do think that it's very important for the rest of the world. But we play to what we understand and we understand a U.S. customer, whether it's an end consumer or business, um, all our connections, especially on the regulatory front, on the hiring front, and with a lot of the big incumbents, they're all in the U.S. 
So we love the emerging markets. It's just not where we have experience or we have connections. So that's why we focus on the U.S. Fair enough. Going back to valuations, you, you mentioned that your typical Series A has, has grown you know, by leaps and bounds. And that also means that valuations <laughs> have grown. They're definitely much higher. Do you think this makes sense? Yeah, well, <laughs> this is a market. The market's dictating the price. So there's, I don't know, <laughs> is, it, is it rational? That's definitely arguable. So where I could justify it if I had to, and at times I do have to, Lately, if you look at the public markets, a lot of the public market comps have been higher than where they have been previously. And then so if I pull and say, okay, the private markets are going to lag the public markets, then yeah, I can justify some of the valuations. And then more importantly, I can look at just where the exits have been. And like I said, have been higher than they ever have. And if you look at the multiples to revenue on an exit, again, the flat and credit karma, like the most recent ones, or you see the valuation for Robinhood and Chime versus where they are revenue-wise, and you go, oh, okay, things are trading at 30x revenue. Would that normally seem rational to me? No, but you're watching deals get done left and right there. So could you justify it? Sometimes you can. I mean, there's still some deals that we look at and some companies we look at and we're just like, you know what, valuation relative to tr- traction, it's just valuation is way too high relative to traction. And there's, there's times where we'll stretch. And so if we look at a market and you see, you know, a trillion dollar opportunity, which is very rare, but I could think of in several instances, especially in some of the infrastructure bets that we've made. And it's a really great team and you see like a trillion dollar market opportunity. And so maybe I do only want to pay a 40 or 50 posts, but it's going to be a 75 post, that's okay because there's such a huge market. I think where we have trouble stretching evaluation is if we look and we can't see the market possibly getting big enough, in which case we might just say to the entrepreneur, this is great and more power to you, go for it and take that round. I mean, for our companies, what we're trying to do is keep them pretty moderate and just say, you don't want to just take the highest valuation who your partner is actually really matters. And in addition to that, you have to be careful because, and it's not going to be the founder and the investors that are going to get screwed. You know, mostly we have enough protections and if the founders are good, people will re-up them. But it's really the individual team members that are going to be in trouble. If let's say you raise a series A at a really high valuation in series B, and then, you know, a couple of years from now, the market changes, then all those people's options are going to be underwater. And you're going to have a big crisis among the team and a big morale issue. So we talk to founders about like, hey, okay, if you take the money now at this valuation, realize people are going to expect you to grow this much. And like, do we think that's achievable? If not, you might take a hit. And you know, you're going to put your teammates, the guys that are like, the guys and gals that are really running this business, you're going to put them underwater. So we've been trying to have people have more reasonable expectations. And I think some of the best serial entrepreneurs get it and they make sure not to put themselves, you know, move the goalposts too much by getting taking crazy valuations. But we're seeing a lot of it. And I think for the most part, you know, we can justify it. I don't love it, but I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. And looking ahead down the line, how do you think about the future of CORE? So we're excited. We're investing in a fund three. So that's good. So they're 
eventually will be a venture fund four and five and uh, we'll, we'll see how old will I be at like six. I'm not sure, but uh, no, no, they're well. It'll outlast me if need be. But so I see Core as a franchise, right? There will be many more funds after fund three. We're also looking at other interesting fund structures to do in addition to venture funds. So I can see us growing in all sorts of ways. Very similar mission to what we, we've always had since the beginning is like do good and do well. And we've evolved. I personally have been spending a lot of time in health insurance and a lot. I'm getting very excited about the investments I can make that lower costs in the healthcare system. And so, you know, I could see us at one point broadening more into fintech and healthcare stuff. We still do a lot of intersection of healthcare and financial services. Maybe at one point we do more that's in the healthcare side. I could see that being possible, but we'll always stick to this do well, do good you know, mercenary returns through missionary investments and really try to help move the needle in this country for fixing financial inclusion in increasing household GDPs. Kat, you've been at CORE basically since day one, as I understand it. And over time, you've done a lot more than just investing. You've built internal processes, best practices, you know, it's a franchise. Do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? Yeah, well, when I ran a company back in the day, so um, yes. And then two, I mean, to me, Ari and I are not just investing, we're building, we're building a brand, we're continuing to build a brand. I don't think you ever stop. We have a philosophy at CORE called Better Tomorrow, and we're always trying to be better, and I think everyone can be better. And so I look at everything that we've built over the last 10 years, and yeah, it does look, it definitely feels more like an entrepreneur in building than just regular investing. As I said earlier, I'm unemployable. So I couldn't have joined just like a big fund. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure one, I might not have loved it. And two, I'm not sure they would have loved, loved me in a big partnership. So Ari and I are building the type of fund that we wanted to be in. I think back in the day, people thought it was crazy. They're like, there's no way you can like, you know, make money and have this impact. And the first two funds, we had two separate pitch decks, one that talked about impact and one that didn't for people, for investors that were financially return driven and then some that were impact driven. You know, it's nice finally to have proven out financial returns and our impact returns so we can have one pitch deck and be like, yes, you can actually make more money, you know, make money and make an impact. And we actually believe we make more money because we bring so much value to an end customer. So like watching this evolution, um, yeah, we built the culture, we built the team, we built the processes, we built a great base of LPs that we love, our entrepreneur network, like our CEOs are just wonderful people I love to work with, the people on our team and really our broader kind of extension of core, the alumni that have come at core, like I'm just, when I think about it and I look at it, I'm just so excited and, you know, it's been fun to build and watch how much has evolved. And I, I remember we were R&I in 2019, 2020, COVID, we did not do uh, an in-person, you know, annual meeting. In 2019, we did. And we looked around and we just couldn't believe it. Just all the wonderful people and our CEOs and the team and our LPs. And, you know, we had professional lighting and furniture and like actual proper AV equipment. And we were laughing because we looked back to 
you know, we thought about years before where we were like in the back of a restaurant and accidentally one of the waiters locked out one of our LPs that had driven like two hours to come to the meeting and he never made it inside the meeting. And like, there were no like big TV screens. There was no lighting. We were like on these cheap chairs. And so you just look at it and you're like, well, this is a production. And, and I remember being in those meetings, like in the early days where people just grill you, you had to remember every number you know, of every company. And they're like, why did you do this? And why did you do that? And now it was just like, everyone was here. And it was really more like a beautiful show. Let's talk about it. Let's parade these wonderful CEOs around us. And, you know, we had sent the quarterly report and no one's grilling us anymore. I'm like, why did you do this or this? And so it just, it's amazing to see how much has changed in the last decade. And it's been super fun to build and looking forward to the next decade. Love it. Love it. I, I respect that a lot. So congrats on your success. Before we let you go, Kat, we always love to ask about our guests' hobbies. And maybe you could tell us, maybe, you know, if you have some hobbies, but also if you've picked up some new hobbies during quarantine <laughs> the last few months. Yeah, I always think that venture is really, it's such a fun job. It's hard for me to even think about it as a job or a career. I would say it's a lifestyle it's not a hobby, but it's a lifestyle and I just like absolutely love it. So I feel grateful every day that this is what I get to do and how I get to spend my time and who I get to work with. Hobby, my favorite thing to do is scuba diving. I've been scuba diving since I was 12 years old and I love it. It's a whole different world. We can't just fly to space that easily, but I think going down under the sea is something that we can do and we can explore. And there's just awesome, all sorts of awesome things down there. And so absolutely love diving. I guess because I pick up any new hobbies in COVID, you know, I haven't. I, I guess I need to branch out anymore. What new hobby did you pick up during COVID? Maybe you'll inspire me. <laughs> I certainly cooked a lot more than I did over the last 10 years. Yeah, no, no, I'm still like microwaving ramen. <laughs> now, uh, I, I, I think, you know what, it's so funny. We had no idea, obviously. No one really did of what would happen in the market. And so like every VC in, in, in March, starting in March for like six weeks, we hunkered down with the portfolio, made sure everyone was in great shape. And then, you know, financial and services and insurances, like COVID has been um, really a boon for innovation. Like it's awful. It's happening. I wish there wasn't a pandemic. I feel terrible for anyone that's gotten sick or people that have family and friends that have died. But what it's done because people are ordering more online and going more digital, it's been great for the financial services companies. Um, it's been great for the payments companies. It's been great for our online banks. And it's really has been amazing. So most of COVID, we're just working more than ever. And um, more companies are getting more like funded than, than they ever have. So I haven't had time to pick up a new hobby. But now that you made me think about it, I'll try. Next time we talk, I'll have a new one. Yeah, no. And speaking of working, I mean, the podcast has really exploded during COVID. And then, you know, it's been wonderful to be able to do so many interviews. And I think it would not have been possible during normal times, pre-COVID times. Congrats on your success. I think it's always important and that's the right attitude of an entrepreneur is to take the silver linings, you know, from really terrible events. And I think of who said never waste a good crisis, but it's true. I think there can be a lot of great things that come out of the bad. So I'm excited that the podcast is taking off and I so appreciate you having me on it. 
No, no. Thank you so much, Kat. Uh, it really means a lot. And feel fortunate that you joined us. Been a, a big fan for a while. So it's definitely a, a big achievement. And I uh, hope to keep in touch and Wharton misses you. So once you start traveling a little bit, make sure to come back and visit. Yep. Cheese steaks soon. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Thank you, Kat. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 